0: How you doing? This is Dusty Rhodes and welcome to Tech Radio with all the ladies in tech from around Ireland and across the world. However, you got our show today by downloading from our website at techcentral.ie or using a smartphone podcast app or listening on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. Thank you for listening in this week. Joining me as ever is Editor-on-Chief of Tech Central, Niall Kitson. Uh, We'll be chatting about the tech stories that have been grabbing our attention this week. And later on, uh, we're also going to find out about 3D printing and how you you can get 3D printing tomorrow, thanks to a brand new store uh, that has opened in Dublin. More about that in a while. But first, Niall, I suppose of the stories that are kind of grabbing our attention in the last couple of weeks, virtual reality is definitely in the top five. A lot of talk about it in Barcelona. But it looks like virtual reality may not be a reality on a Mac. Yeah, we've been pretty,
2: pretty excited about virtual reality for the last year. Uh, year and a bit, I guess, at this stage, ever since uh, we saw that the the Oculus Rift was was going to become a reality. Mm. Um, however, uh, co-founder of Oculus, Palmer Luckey, has come out and said, yeah, we, we know that you know, the Rift is going to find its its feet with gamers initially. Um, so when it comes to the Mac, the graphics capability isn't there. I think it's exact words were, you will see an Oculus Rift on uh, being used with a Mac when Apple start making computers that are good enough for us.
0: <laughs> oh, meow! So, this, does, that, does that mean then that the uh, you know the, the the Mac Pro, which costs thousands, of, well, it's about five grand, I reckon. Uh, I'd I'd have to spend on one that's not good enough to run virtual reality. No,
2: apparently not. No, which is kind of strange when you think at the professions that uh, Apple has traditionally scored very highly with, which would be sort of the designers, the M- multimedia editors. Um, well, that's what I was going to say.
0: I bet you that half of the software is designed on a Mac, and half of the graphics for a virtual reality are all designed on a Mac. So why can't why can't it run on it? But then, mind you, Apple's aren't really big gaming machines either, are they? So
2: never, never really have been. Hmm. No, it's it, they've always gone to sort of the people that make the things as opposed to the people that consume them. When when it comes to uh, to Mac, so I, I can sort of see where where Lucky is coming from. I do understand there are. You market forces at play here as well. I mean, the the PC gaming industry is pretty much, you know, it it is games, unless you're into consoles as well. But um, the hardcore gamers that are more likely to shell out big bucks for a VR headset, I I think they are going to come from the gaming community before you get a a groundswell maybe from Xbox or something like that. Uh, It is very disappointing, though, but if you look at the form factor of of Macs at the moment, you know, the all-in-ones in particular, they're not designed to be messed with. You know, they are an all-in-one device, and the priority is being sleek and light. Mm. And some of these graphics cards that you will need to drive uh, an Oculus Rift properly, they, they are not sleek. You know, they are chunky things and they have to sit into an either a, a very yeah, nicely constructed
0: video, tower. The video cards in, in the Mac Pro is be able to display three displays at the same time all running 4K images. Video. I know. Yeah, so, yeah. It's a bit of a conundrum really, isn't it? It is a little bit. Listen, I was uh, I was reading through um, some of our reviews on iTunes and please, if you listen to the podcast and you have a minute, stick, stick a review for it on iTunes. We like good and we like bad. And in fact, uh, one of the comments that was made was that uh, we're very um, uh, against Apple on this particular show. And I have to hold my hand up and say, no, that's only me. <laughs> 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 Nile Ni- 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 is definitely the other side and always flies the flag for uh, uh, for Apple. So let's, let's try and do a little bit of good news for Apple. Apple definitely uh, showing a sign of success and becoming part of the mainstream because now it has its own ransomware.
2: Yeah, that's, that's a really backhanded compliment, Dusty.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. Yay, it's Apple. not a compliment it's, in any way.
2: <laughs> it, it's like, yay, malware has arrived
0: for the Mac, you guys are okay by me. <laughs> well, actually, it is kind of, it is kind of, because uh, it kind of, it's one of the things that everybody said about a Mac, Macs don't get viruses, because, you know, what's the point in, in writing a virus for it when 95% of computing is done on, on Windows? That's yeah, That was always yeah. the, the reasoning given. And also, Apple, because they were in a walled garden, it's much harder to become a developer to write software that will actually work on, on a Mac, as all this vetting process and everything. But it's it's gone wrong.
2: Well, no, the, the vetting process itself hasn't gone wrong because this is a piece of software that exists outside the uh, Mac App Store. So, granted, if you want to get into the App Store, yeah, there's a vetting process. But otherwise, it's just like uh, just like anyone else who wants to develop a piece of software. Now, what happened precisely is that a version of the Q Ranger um, ransomware found itself embedded, well found, was embedded into a version of the transmission BitTorrent client. Now, the um, client has since uh, had a new version released and it's being cleaned up. So if you want to share files with your friends, you can do that to your heart's content. And if you want to infringe copyright, well, I guess you can do that too. However, what the piece of uh, malware or ransomware in this case is, is that it puts a lockdown on all your files on your computer and it gives you a 72-hour window in which you are to... um, Pay roughly, uh, well, one bitcoin. So I think it's around three hundred and seventy or three hundred and eighty euro uh, to get your stuff back. Otherwise, that's it. It's going to be deleted. It's going to be wiped. Um, so it, it it becomes a sort of a game of Russian roulette, or you know, or chicken. You know, who blinks first? If you have a backup, and it's uh, you know, it's safe enough. Um, yep. Or or do you just decide to pay the ransom and move on? Oddly enough, the majority of people, and this goes from the person in the street all the way through to Um, You know, the public sector uh, and law enforcement agencies in the States and and hospitals as well, they pay the ransom and the, the hacker moves on.
0: I've, I've, uh, I've heard of people paying these ransoms and, uh, and it, it's crazy. And uh, when, when you say backups, and this is something I have to say to people, uh, quite a lot, is they think that, you know, Dropbox or OneDrive or something like that is a backup. It's not because that's synchronizing your files. And what happens is with these, uh, uh malwares that it gets in and it puts some kind of a lock on your file on your PC. Well, then that gets synced with the one. In the cloud. <laughs> so that's equally as, as, as in trouble as everything else. Sorry, there's lots of words I'm thinking in my head, but I realize that we're broadcasting. Uh, I can't say any of them. But anyway, uh, or as they say in Australia, you're buggered, mate. There you go.
2: Well, there you go. That, that covers everything. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I guess the good news is that, you know, the, The time of danger has passed, but at the same time, uh, ransomware is particularly Mm. foul, I think. And you know that there's just, there's call centres off in certain countries where people are just making a mint out of this kind of thing, you know?
0: Yeah, when you say call centres, you actually mean there's call centres for these people who write the ransomware, for people who want to call up and say, "I, I don't know how to get Bitcoin. And there's a nice person there at the other end of the phone, well, here's what you do.
2: Yeah, they're big operations. Uh, there was an excellent show. Um, I think it was on an episode of NPR's Radio Lab where they talked about well, what exactly is ransomware and how does it work. So um, absolutely, go, go and have a look for it. Uh, it. It makes for really interesting listening.
0: All right. And then, uh, as, as always, we'd like to give a little bit of advice. Uh, if you are backing up your files, your best bet is to stick it onto a USB drive and disconnect it. Disconnected drives can't get infected.
2: Yep, yep, that's really good advice. Now, I, speaking
0: I of uh, uh, of this kind of thing, like people getting in on computers and doing things that you don't want to do, uh Edward Snowden has been out in public again talking about the FBI case uh, where they're trying to break into the phones of the uh, San Bernardino uh, duo. And, of course, uh, the government in the United States are trying to sue Apple to get them to unlock blah, 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 blah code and stuff like that. Um Edward Snowden is not impressed. Yeah, well, I mean,
2: Edward Snowden was speaking at the uh, Common Cause Blueprint for a Great Democracy uh, conference uh, during the week. And, um, yeah, he, he basically said, you know, the way the FBI says Apple has the exclusive techno- technical means to unlock an iPhone. Uh, well, guess what? That is, insert exclusive of choice here. Yep. Uh, and, and, of course, it's, it's total bunk. I mean, you know that for, for every piece of software, there is something somewhere that can crack it. And you know that, you know, this is all about optics at this stage. I and mean, the facts of the case are that we know the M. Um, San Bernardino shooters had no uh, information of merit. On this iPhone, on this, you know, iPhone 5C in, uh, in question, you know, um, they, they had no links to other terrorist organizations. They they uh, the phone companies gave up all the call logs, all the SMS messages. There is nothing on this phone that the FBI does not need in order to state their case. Absolutely nothing. Apparently, it's not even like a personal phone. It's a work phone. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure what they intend to find on it. What they're looking for is a precedent publicly set precedent to give them access to any device anywhere. For me, that's what this case is down to at Uh, the moment. It's just about the optics.
0: uh, Do you think Edward Snowden is only saying what, you know, I'm sure many of us are thinking, which is like, they know how to do this. They just need the precedent to be able to do it legally from now on yeah
2: because they 've been stung over uh, prism and Snow- Snowden, as we all know, was the guy who who leaked all the information about prism and basically said look if if the American government want to listen in on what you 're doing, they will do it, and they have the means to do it um, and this is this is how it works
0: the uh, other, the the other slightly related thing uh, to do with that is there are videos flying around Facebook like you wouldn't believe this week with video instructions on how to hack into an iPhone, any iPhone at any time, how <laughs> to break the code. It's very very funny. Uh, all oh, the news, all the news this week. Um, I'm I'm th- I've been reminded of the computer from a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Do you remember the name of the computer that came up with the answer forty two? Oh, deep,
2: deep thought.
0: Wasn't deep it? thought. Yes, indeed. It reminds me of uh, Google's AlphaGo.
2: Yeah, um, yeah. Okay. Here's the here's the story. This is another classic man versus machine, machine thumps man um, kind of kind of thing, and it's it's ongoing. But uh, a couple of years ago, Google acquired an English company called DeepMind that was working <laughs> on AI, and uh, their work has now evolved into Google AlphaGo. And the purpose of Alpha Go is to play a game called Go. Uh and you know the can can Google's AI beat the best human players of this game in the world? Very simple, very similar to what happened with um uh, Deep Blue and um, Gary Kasparov in the
0: 90s. I was about to say because uh, the the game Go is very popular in Asia and it is a little bit like chess. There's so many permutations and combinations and strategy and, and it all has to be worked out. For a human being with skill, yeah, it's possible. But for a computer, it's, well, wow, that's that's something else.
2: Yeah, well, it's the intuitive aspect as well. I mean, Go is a very interesting game. Like, I mean, you've got a 19 by 19 um, square board and the idea is to enclose your opponent uh, basically make it, make it such that your opponent cannot move by enclosing them with your own pieces. Wow. And uh, it's it's a quite a complicated game. Um, it's three thousand years old, so you know there's staying power right there. So it, it is kind of a final frontier of board games because you can um, you can predict it up to a point. You can use algorithms up to a point, but Beyond that point, human intuition and imagination has to kick in. And uh, guess what? When it when it came to this AI AlphaGo, uh, who went up against the best player of Go in the world at the moment, who is uh, Dol, S-E-D-O-L, I'm sure I pronounced that incorrectly, but there you go. Uh, he is a prodigy at this game. He's been a professional since he was 12, and he's 30 now. So, you know, a, an absolute master, um, best player in the world, and... At the time that we're talking, uh, he he's lost the first of five games in this series. And his take on it was um he felt that at the start he made an error and the machine did something kind of strange and he was never able to re- react to it. Even sort of after two hours plus of gameplay, he just wasn't able to um to catch up. So just goes to show I mean machines can demonstrate something approaching imagination, which is kind of scary, I think.
0: Uh, uh, Well, we'll we'll see how that one goes. The uh, last bit of news for this week, then, is rather a bit of a a sad passing away of somebody who invented something very critical in our electronic lives.
2: Yeah, Ray Tomlinson, uh, inventor of email, died at 74 earlier this week. Um, Not not only the creator of email, um, which he saw as, you know, a very, very elegant solution to a simple problem of getting messages to people across a, a an electronic network. Um, he in also introduced the at sign. And and you wonder sort of where did it come from? And when you hear where it came from, you're like, of course. But it still took somebody to have that initial idea, if you know what I mean. So like when asked, why why did you use at? And he's like, well, you know, it's a very simple thing where you, you'll go to sort of a grocer's and you'll see, um, you know, 11 things Ash, 50 cents each, or something like that, you know?
0: Hmm.
2: Um, and he went, okay, well, let's just do name Ash where they are.
0: Well, it's, it's, it go. makes it, it's like, you know, kind of, like I want to go and see my my, my friend Tom at his apartment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, yeah. several so people live in Denver's. the apartment, you know, that, that, that kind of way. Do you know what really shocked me, or what I thought was very unusual about the story, was that uh, they were actually considering phasing out the at key from keyboards,
2: no, really? Yeah,
0: yeah. When, and, and he kind of, he saw it now. That, that wasn't the reason why he picked it, obviously, um, but it, because it made sense to him. But also, all the other keys, you see, were being used so much, like the pound symbol and the dollar symbol and the percentage and the plus and, and, and brackets and all kinds of stuff. The A key was actually going out of fashion.
2: <laughs> mm. uh, it makes you wonder then, which key is most likely to go? Out of all the keys on your keyboard... Which one could be relegated to, you know, a third-tier shortcut or just a symbol uh, in a menu? Like, which kind of symbol on a keyboard do we no longer need?
0: Answers on a postcard or even Uh. by email. Who knows? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for keeping us up to date with what's been going on.
1: This is Tech Central, your weekly tech podcast from Ireland's TechCentral.ie.
0: We're all familiar with the idea of 3D printing and how it could change the way that we make everything from toys to car parts. You probably also know how expensive the printers themselves are, uh, but one company has been working a way to change that by offering a first for Ireland, a 3D printing shop. Niall has been out to Rathmines this week to visit 3D Printing Dublin and to meet with founder Nigel Burke to learn about his plans to make the technology available to everybody.
2: I'm in Rathmines in Dublin now uh, to meet Nigel Burke uh, who is the founder of 3D Printing Dublin and to sort of describe where I am at the moment it's one part shop one part workshop and it feels like one part gallery as well. Um, so Nigel just to explain a little bit about what's going on here um, how would you describe your operation?
1: Uh, hello there Niles. Um... We offer the following services. We, we sell 3D printers. Uh, we make rapid prototypes. And we do training and workshops.
2: Now, uh, as I remember, um, this... Uh, building and I believe it was your first business as well, was uh, in Internet cafes. And I think it's very interesting to see the evolution of technology to go from you know, where the Internet was the emerging technology where people were flocking to. And would it be fair to say 3D printing is almost at that stage as well?
1: Yeah, 3D printing was really only um, commonly available in the last uh, three, four years as new small companies set up affordable printers. Uh, and now it's possible to buy a printer for less than a thousand euro um, we find that a lot of customers are still not sure about the technology so they're they're playing wait and see and they're going to bureaus just like ours uh, offering us files for them to print out which is a little bit cheaper than buying the machines.
2: So say if I have an idea uh, and I want to see it uh, brought to fruition, what is the process behind it? Uh,
1: the process would involve uh, the client having to create a digital file first typically using a program, a free program like SketchUp or SolidWorks, the client would do their CAD design, um, send it to us in an STL format. Um, we would then slice the device for them and price it for them. If they're happy with the price, we go and print out the the prototype in you know one or two days, and then we either ship it to them or they collect.
2: And uh, given that it's RathMines, it's sort of quite... Um Quite a cosmopolitan area, a lot of different types of people um, meeting and mixing. So, um, what kind of projects are you seeing come in? I mean, I imagine you're not seeing um, people looking specifically for figurines or toys. Uh, what kinds of things are people looking for?
1: A lot of our customers would be from the university sector. Uh, project work, um, this is obviously something they need completed. Many of the universities do have limited 3D printing facilities. Um, but they need more printers. As a result, they come to us, and we we, we pick up the flak.
2: And uh, I mean, I remember when I saw the the um, shop for the first time. I I just happened to be going through Rathmines, and I thought that's that's a first for Dublin, as far as I know. I, uh, am I right in saying that? Is this a, a first for the city? The first for the country, even?
1: Yeah, we opened in. Uh, May 2011, 2013, I believe we were one of the first in the world. Uh, At the moment, I think there were no other ones here in Ireland. Um, But maybe that's going to change in the future.
2: And uh, I I guess this speaks to sort of the the history of 3D printing, uh, which um, you were telling me earlier goes back to the 1980s um, and uh, and the States. So uh, how... uh, to, to sort of talk about the evolution of the technology, what advances have we seen in terms of the materials that were used initially and what kind of materials are being used now?
1: Well, the technology was formed by a man called Chuck Hall in the US of A back in 1986. He then went on and founded a company called 3D Systems. Um, there was an awful lot of patent protection around the earlier machines. FTM technology, fused deposition uh, where you're using literally plastic, uh, that was invented back in the early 90s. Those devices are now available to buy as desktop printers uh, for less than a €1,000. with material costs are about €40. Euro. So they're very, very cost-effective and affordable and they would fit in easily in anybody's house or office environment.
2: And uh, I guess... It's kind of a case of having these massive devices scaling down, but then also sort of scaling upwards again to suit sort of bigger projects.
1: Uh, well, it's now, as I said, it's now possible to buy machines that are the same size as a PC, but it's also possible to buy machines that would be big enough for you to print a, a table. Um, so the variety is certainly out there, and the costs are dropping very, very rapidly. So today you can buy a machine for €1,000, or you can buy one for up to €250,000, which typically would probably use, uh, would be a metal 3D printer
2: and uh, in terms of sort of the commercial model that you have here that you're relying not so much on passing trade but on general awareness of the technology um, how do you find do you think that there's a a community of people involved in 3d printing building up do you think that you know certain faculties and colleges are going by the way if you want to prototype through 3d printing really is the way to go and here's where it can be done
1: The industry is very small right now. Traditionally there have been a number of universities that have have invested considerable sums of money in in what we call industrial grade printers. Uh, A lot of these are no longer functioning because they were too expensive to use. Uh, So right now uh, the universities are actually starting to invest in the low cost printers which are very, very cheap to buy and cheap to use. Uh, in parallel to that, there's a lot of end users that are very inquisitive about this technology and are starting to buy them and use them in their houses for making you know, toys for their kids or maybe customizing existing products.
2: Uh, sort of the um, idea of making toys is very interesting because when you look at sort of the price of figurines for for kids, you might a lot of people would look at it as being sort of quite prohibitive. But uh, one company that you were telling me that have kind of uh, embraced three D printing is uh, Lego. So could you tell me a little bit about their plans?
1: I believe Lego now have a system whereby um, people who purchase their toys can sign up for a membership procedure, and uh, then they can have access to. Lego CAD files, which they can then put into their printers and use them to print out components for their Lego toys. And we think in the future this will become a more common model whereby people with 3D printers will be able to freely access some of these large companies' digital designs.
2: Uh, and, of course, sort of moving away from toys as well, there's loads of other applications beyond sort of um, industrial prototyping, beyond you know toys, that we're looking at industries like maybe fashion embracing it as well.
1: Yeah, the fashion industry are very excited by this technology, in particular the polyjet printing, where uh, the materials that can be made are very, very comfortable to wear. So I know the high-end fashion industry, Iris von Harpen in particular from Belgium, She's starting to use this technology because she can use the devices to print very, very complicated, intricate shapes that a typical machinist would be incapable of making. And then
2: uh, sort of uh, expanding then from fashion, I mean, uh, just looking around the, um, the store at the moment, there's an awful lot of variation. Uh, I mean, we've got sort of mock-ups of the, the um, FIFA World Cup trophy, uh, but we've also got uh, a few very interesting design pieces as well. Would you have people come in and go, look, I've got an idea for a, an ornament or a piece of furniture, how do we make it happen?
1: Uh, yes, there's a nice uh, piece of furniture over there, a prototype. The client uh, wanted to find out, how it would look when it was finished, so he got us to make this prototype for him, and it helped him to visualise how the final product would work, and also it was useful to give the prototype to his customer just to make sure that he or she was happy with that product.
2: And uh, then in terms of looking towards the technology in future, uh, we're looking at materials where we're getting... um sort of wood grain kind of, kind of a feel. Of course, we have metal, we've got plastics. Uh, but we're also looking at sort of biomedical uses as well.
1: Uh, yes, the, the medical sector are experimenting with uh, using live collagen uh, to make living cells that they can build up. And right now they're able to make skin, we believe, in small quantities. And they have experimented with making prosthetic devices and I understand there is a woman walking around right now in the US of A and she, is, she has a 3D-printed bladder within her. Um, so it might, be practic- it might be fair to say that in 20 years from now, uh, maybe organ transplantation will be redundant.
2: That's, that's a, a very interesting and quite a, quite a grand claim. Do you, do you see any real limitations to the technology at the moment?
1: Uh, no, we don't see any limitations. We're, just, uh, we're hoping that um, the government will uh, recognize how important this technology is and uh, sooner rather than later start to introduce it into our education sector. We would hope that five years from now there might be a 3D printer in every school in Ireland. Um, and this is what they're doing in Germany and the UK. So we don't want to get left behind. Uh, it would be good for the teenagers in Ireland to have you know, a competitive advantage.
2: So sort of the, the future of manufacturing isn't factories, it's the bedroom.
1: Well, the future, I mean, I guess the factory of the future is going to be very different to the factory of today. It's going to be a very quiet environment. Um, it's probably going to be a, an office-type environment. You're literally going to have 20 or 30 of these uh, 3D printing devices printing out different widgets 24-7 um, with highly qualified uh, uh, digital manufacturing people, uh, just minding these devices.
2: And if somebody wants to get in uh, touch with you, uh, how do they do that?
1: They can either contact us at hello at uh, 3DPrintingDublin.com or they can give us a phone call. Yes, we still have a landline on uh, 015372618. Thank you, Nigel.
0: And that was Niall talking to Nigel Burke of 3D Printing in Dublin. And that's almost it for this week. Uh, Niall's still with us, of course. Niall, what's our one more thing that we weren't able to talk about in the podcast, but is on the website?
2: Uh, Yeah, some interesting prognostication to be found in the trade section of Tech Central this week. Um, Research firm IDC reckons that uh, there is a lot of life left in Windows yet, but not necessarily on the desktop.
0: Ah, whatever do they mean. Check it out at techcentral.ie. While you're there, sign up for hourly updates or daily newsletters, if that's what you want, along with our weekly tech radio show uh, online on the website. And every Friday, of course, at 6 o'clock on DAB Digital Radio with RTE Radio 1 Extra. That's it for this week. Until next week, for myself and Niall, thanks for listening. Take care.
1: Get Tech Radio. Subscribe for free with iTunes or download on demand at techcentral.ie.